Well, thank you, family members that have come in honor of, of your family. And um, it was different for the disciples. When their friend was put in the grave, he came back. And uh, then he left again. But that was totally different than what we have today. And uh, although it's leading to something good, and, and um, so we have that great hope. There are three passages of Scripture I want us to look at this morning, and so if you'll stand with me, we'll read those together, and I'm just going to turn around here and, and read them for you as we look at these. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You may be seated. Well, let's get back to our series that we've been doing here for the last few weeks. It is now three weeks past Easter. And we are to pretend again that we are one of the disciples. This is three weeks after Jesus has resurrected. And what are we thinking at this time in our lives? What are are we feeling? What are the questions we have? What are the issues at at hand in our life? I don't think this is an ordinary time for these disciples. This was really an interesting period for them. There is without doubt evidence that points to the fact that these were really heart-searching days for these disciples. It wasn't like, okay, it's all happened, now I'm going to go on with my life as usual. These were days that were really heart-searching for these disciples. And no doubt, more than ever in their life, they are grappling with some issues like they have never grappled with before. And mainly, these were the spiritual issues. Jesus has done his part. He has come to this world. They have begun to realize that. He has become the sacrificial lamb. He has fought and beat death. He has paid for their sins. He has granted them eternal life. I think all of that is kind of sinking into them. And he has showed his unlimited power. They've witnessed it. They've watched it as he has done things. Now what are they to do? It's not like, okay, this little three-year interruption in our life. I guess I'll go back to to whatever life was before and go on. No, this was something that was leaving them with questions. What am I going to do now? And and what about me? And there's some needs, some issues I recognize in my life. And so they they are just more keenly than ever feeling these things. And one of the things that they're really beginning to understand is, or, or sense in their own lives, is we fall so far short of what we know God wants from us. We just know it. All the things that Jesus taught us. We, how do we measure up to what God wants out of our lives? And this realization just would not go away. The Holy Spirit just seemed to keep coming back to them again and again. And uh, the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised would come to them has really got a hold of them. It would not let them go. And it's just building And they are coming to accept the truth that what Jesus wants us to do, what God wants us to do in our lives and live the way he wants us to live, we can't do it. 
It just seems beyond our reach, beyond anything we can do. And so it's kind of like also at the same time they're getting this sense of something needs to be washed and cleansed and released and, and dropped off of us. And they're asking the question, but what is it? So I've put together three very interesting passages of Scripture. In fact, do they even make sense going together? So let's look at each passage real quickly. You don't get three sermons. This is just one sermon. And so that very first passage... Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In that passage, we're going to look at this subject this morning briefly, that he is the God of power and recreation. Not recreation, but recreation. He is the God of recreation. Several things to look at here. The first is, God creates. We are told in that passage there, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we know that God creates, and the very Hebrew word that is used for the word uh, create in our English translation, which, come, which comes from bara, is a Hebrew word that means that God created out of nothing. It's like you would take a box and there's nothing in it, you would take open the lid, and out of that box, nothing being in it, God took the nothingness out of that box and created everything we have. That's what the Bible is saying, literally. God created out of nothing. And uh, beyond this, it's interesting, the Bible is, is so long, isn't it? I meant to do this, I didn't, but I was going to Google and ask the simple question, how many words in the Bible? I don't know how many words are in the Bible, but it's got to be millions, you know, millions of words. I don't know if it would be a billion or not, probably not, but millions of words. In the Bible, you know how many words are taken in the Bible to tell us about creation? Only 282 words. That's it. That's all there is. And yet we debate it and talk about it and so on, but it's a very minimal amount of words that speaks to this subject of creation. I guess it's because the Bible's really not, that's really not the main story, is it? The main story is Jesus. The gospel, salvation. But, uh, so it's not the main part of the book, but we do believe the Bible is God-breathed, Spirit-breathed, and that the Holy Spirit oversaw the authors as they wrote this book. And so God himself put into this book what he wanted to say in this book to us. And, uh, and so this book tells us what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you and I, believing in all of that, we just take it for a fact, God put it all into existence. He's a creator. Let's look at the next thing that we find from these first two verses in the Bible, and that is simply this. Something must have happened to that original creation. And the Bible puts it this way. Now, The earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew words for formless and empty means that something came into ruin. Something came into chaos. Something came into a vacancy, an emptiness resulted. So God created, something happened, and it, it, it was thrown out of balance. It was thrown into chaos. It was thrown into ruin. It was thrown with 
with this emptiness. Now, the Bible is a story about salvation. It's a story for us fallen, sinful people and how God sent himself, his son, to redeem us, to save us, and to restore sinful men. So the Bible is really not a book about Satan. He is not the principal player. He's one of the players in the story, in the play. But he's not the principal subject of the book. But if we were to look at the subject of Satan this morning and note some things about him, they would be these things. We would find that Satan was originally in his first creation, God's highest cherished angel. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, the Bible describes him as the morning star. Uh, uh, The Bible tells us that he was that, uh, if you want to think of it, that right hand angel, that cherished angel, that one that God loved. He was the bright morning star. But we find then that this bright morning star, this being decided, I want to be God. And he attempted to make himself God. And in doing that, he persuaded one third of the angels to follow suit and follow him. And they did. He was expelled from heaven, as well as all of these fallen angels, according to Isaiah fourteen twelve. And it appears that as he fell, he was cast from heaven. And it must have been maybe at this point between verse 1 and verse 2, that this earth, where he was the principal player, you could say, or ruled this earth, the prince of this earth, it threw it into chaos, into this empty, void, chaotic place. But let's move on here. The third thing we would find is then, if that were the case, then this earth was void of God's presence. Can you imagine a place where God was and then God wasn't? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Here's a sentence that is telling us God was not there. God is light. Remember that? In heaven, is it interesting that there will be no night and day? Why? Because God is there. The presence of Jesus will be the eternal light. And so the earth became dark God was not there. He pulled himself out of it, and no wonder the earth is described as a darkness. But why the void? Why the chaos? Why the darkness on earth? Because Satan has made that awful choice to rebel against God, to attempt to make himself God, and it resulted in his expulsion from heaven, and Satan also lived on this earth. He ruled this planet. It was his, and so God left this planet And it resulted in this chaotic, dark, empty, ruin, and void. But look at this. Here's the neat part. The mighty spirit of God is about to act. What do we read? And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I don't know if we really get the full emphasis and meaning there. When the Spirit of God is brooding, when He is hovering, you could cut the thickness with a knife. That's the presence of God. And He's over this darkness, this complete dark. And so now we get to what I'm really trying to get across in point one, how this is going to tie together with the other ones. 
Is it simply this? God is an awesome, mighty, undescribable being of power. What do you think? It would blow our minds. I think we would faint if literally you and I could have been there to have watched six 24-hour periods as God put it all into place. I can't even imagine what that looked like. But He did. That's this mighty, awesome God who is hovering over the waters, getting ready to create. That's the Spirit of God. Recreate. That is Him. And what an awesome job He did. God took what went wrong, He recreated, He made it right. Now let's go on to number two, our second passage. The God of His Word. John seventeen seventeen, And... Uh, Let's, let's go on to there. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It would seem to make sense that these disciples, after the resurrection, were drawn again and again and again. What was Jesus saying the night before his crucifixion? He was praying, God, or Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I think those words rang through their heart and mind hundreds of times. What was he saying? What was he really praying for? Because you see, they had this growing felt need within them, this lack of of knowing Jesus wants us to live for him. Jesus gave us a commission, but we're frustrated. There's something that's missing. What was Jesus talking about when he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. When you are drawn to God, but you lack so much, what should you do? Keep in God's Word. Read it. Study it. Treat it in your heart like it is the map of all maps. It is a priceless treasure. It's like the most important GPS system you'll ever come across. God's Word is just that. And if you do that, you see, God is going to honor you and he is going to give you directions. And didn't God say to us somewhere in the Old Testament, you will seek me and you will find me when you diligently search for me. So keep in God's word. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus was praying for these disciples to do just that, to let the Old Testament Scriptures speak to them, to let everything that Jesus has spoken to them be the very Word of God that is is permeating everything in their life, teaching them, and that truth will lead them to the answer. You know, there are several ways you can read a book. I can take a book. I've got a hymnal here, but let's just pretend it's a book. And... It could be that I'm taking a course in high school, college, seminary, whatever, getting my master's. And in one of those courses, the teacher says, I'm not going to test you on this book, but I'm requiring you to read it. I've had books like that in some of my courses. And there were books that I read that I wasn't sure I knew what I was reading. And I really didn't particularly care what I was reading But I wanted to be honest, and so therefore I read that book, 
and I could check it off and say to the teacher, I read the book. Some people read the Bible that way. And that's really not what Jesus was saying, was it? That's not going to sanctify you. That's not going to do what it's what Jesus prayed for it to do, the word of truth, if you read the book like that. You can read a book like that, but you can't the Bible. Another way to read a book is like this. You are going to be tested over it, and so you know you better get all the facts down straight, and you better, you know, all those little memory gimmicks you can do to remember things, use an acrostic to remember stuff, and you learn to do those things if you're in, if you have a lot of courses you got to go through. And, uh, you know, like when you get a driver's license and uh, anything else. So you sometimes you read a book because you know you'll be tested. But again, you may not like the book, right? i got to learn it because i got to pass the course. i got to get something out of it. The Bible really is not supposed to be read that way as such either. Third way to read a book And I love this. I'll pick up a good autobiography or some other type of book, and I just can't put it down. I'm reading a book right now at home, some of the books I'm reading. One of them, uh, Dave, you'll you'll like this, is about Pistol Pete Maravich. And the library was selling a bunch of books. It was a quarter. It was a hardbound book. And... I thought, well, I, I, I want to read this, and I can't put the book down. It is one of the most amazing stories of a person, a sports person I've ever read. That's how Jesus is saying, you got to read the Bible. It's amazing. It, it's got stuff in there that's like gold, like honey. It's the sweetest stuff you'll ever read. It's the it's the deepest stuff you'll ever read. It's the most heart gripping stuff you'll ever come across. And Jesus is saying, Father, your truth. If these disciples will take your word in like that, it's going to lead to their sanctification, the very thing that they need in their lives. And so you read it like that, and and. Uh, These disciples, believe me, after the resurrection, I think they were pouring over everything Jesus said to them. They were discussing it among themselves. As they lay on their beds at night, I'm sure, as they couldn't sleep and something was going on in their heart, they kept thinking of things Jesus had said to them in those three years. And Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by Thy truth. Your Word is truth. When you've got a need... Don't back away from the light. Go towards the light. Stay in the Word. Well, sanctification means two things in the Bible. Number one, it means to set apart for a special task, to to become a member of the team. And if that's one of the meanings for sanctification, then that really has already taken place for these disciples, don't you think? At least to a a pretty good degree, they have given up their own lives for three years. They've walked with Jesus. They've, They've followed him to the best of their own human strength and ability. And so they've done that. They've been set apart. Jesus picked them out, all 12 of them. One betrayed him, but 
The other 11 stayed with him. They've been set apart for him in that way. And so they're already set apart. Now that's going to increase to a degree in the days to come because there were times they backed away from him. But in the days to come, they will see that increase a little bit. But the second meaning of, of uh, to sanctify, sanctification means to equip a person with the qualities of heart and character to fit them for a task. So, in other words, it's like this. He who would serve a holy God must he himself also be holy. And that's really where the tough part was coming in for these disciples. Every one of them realized Jesus told them to serve him. God himself says, be holy as he is holy. We're not. We sense it. We know it. We're not holy. They just know it. So here's what's going on. These disciples are feeling this real tug going on in their hearts. It's to serve Jesus. It's to really give themselves to him completely. It is to live and serve God in a way that pleases him. It is to be holy. But there's this issue that they just can't seem to deal with. God is holy. How can we be holy? Or how can we become holy? Because we know we can't. To serve him deep down inside the way we know we ought to, we just can't seem to make that come about. Well, that gets us to our third passage of Scripture this morning, the First Thessalonians chapter 5. And it brings us to this point, that God who brings total cleansing and a makeover. Now, here's what's interesting. We're getting near the end of the book of the, to the Thessalonians by the Apostle Paul. He's written to them, these Thessalonian believers were just like the disciples. They too, like the disciples, have given them lives have given their lives to the Lord. They too, like the disciples, have have chosen to be set apart for God, to say we are Christian. They've declared that. They've been sanctified in that way, set apart for God, declared servants for Him. But now they are feeling probably, evidently, what those disciples were feeling also. And that is a cleansing. So Paul writes this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. It's interesting that he would put it that way. You know, why would he not just say sanctify them once instead of sanctify them through and through? This through and through means you put something in the clothes washer, the clothes, and you really put in the soap and the bleach and all that stuff to where you're going to get clean clothes. You run it through, you put it in the dryer, and the, the, the person, the owner says, okay, now... Do it again. A second time? They've already been clean. Yeah, do it a second time because I want to make sure it is totally clean. That is what God's Word is saying. Sanctify them through and through. Total. Nothing left. Nothing missed. Everything. These disciples realize we can't do that. 
We cannot make ourselves holy before God. We're sensing that. We know that. And everything they tried, they failed. And no wonder it failed because here we get the message that God is saying in this passage here, or Paul is saying it for us, saying it for God, is may God himself sanctify you through and through. Disciples, you've been trying to do it, haven't you? And they would all say, yeah, we have. We've really been trying. We can't do it. Paul says the answer is this. May God himself, God is the agent. If we want to be like God and be holy, then we have to ask he who is holy to make us holy. We're holy outside of ourselves, and we can't make anything holy, but God can. Now that should kind of boggle your mind. Can we be holy like God is holy? We would all this morning admit the fact God has he's never sinned. Jesus lived God on this earth. He never did a thing wrong. He never had a wrong attitude. We look at our lives and we begin to realize, oh, yeah, I've lied. Yeah, I've deceived others. Yeah, I've stolen something. Oh, I've had my fits of rage and anger and fits of jealousy and envy. And oh, I've, I've gossiped. I've hurt somebody. I've loved this world. I've sold Jesus off. I've had my idols. You and I were were soiled, aren't we? And God wants us to be holy like he is holy. And we would say, I don't understand that. Our character is so tainted. Can we really become holy? Well, not in our own strength or power, or doing, but God can and will do it for us, and he wants us to do it, wants to do it for us, and he is desirous to do it for us. He is wanting to do that makeover. He is wanting to do that recreation. And so now, if you're having a hard time believing if God can do it or not, let me take you back to that earth that was dark and empty, chaotic, and void, and ruined. And God was not there, but the Spirit of God began to brood over those waters. And what did He do? The Spirit of God will brood over your spirit and hover over your spirit just like that. And He is saying, I want to make them holy clean through and through. It doesn't take away the past. He forgives the past. Then He cleanses us the vessel. And we say, though I was tainted, yet now I am clean. Though I was unholy, yet now in Christ, faith in Him, I am clean holy. You bow your heads. Father, I thank you that your spirit right now is hovering over this place, this sanctuary, this church. But not so much a building, Father, as you are hovering over each of our spirits. 
And you are drawing us to this same thing you drew those disciples to. When you prayed for them to your Father to sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, you are doing that very thing, same thing this morning with each one of us. And may we not back away from the truth, but may we be drawn to the truth. May we devour your word in our hunger and our search for spiritual answers, Lord, until we diligently do it and we come and we find the answer and we experience the sanctification that you want us to have. Then, Lord, I pray that you will give us faith to just believe in what you have provided for us and will do for us in the act. Speak to our hearts right now, Father, this morning. In your name I pray, amen. As we close this morning and as we stand, we're going to sing the little song, Give Us Clean Hands, Give Us Clean Hearts. And i just going to open up the altars this morning. These are altars of a very welcome place. God is here, and God meets us here. And as we feel these special needs and God speaking to us, and we come to a place of kneeling in prayer, God meets us there. And we give our need to God, we pray to Him about it, and God will answer as we come to Him in faith. And if God has been speaking to your heart this morning, I just invite you as we sing through this two times, come and you pray, and I'll be here to pray with you.